What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Today, we're going to take a look at Raul Powell's Bitcoin Life Raft video. I'm going to react to it here. <laughs> it's, it's a podcast reaction. I view this as constructive criticism. I'm not trying to be mean about this. We're all learning. Uh, this is a very good learning opportunity to uh, break this down. So I am using his video. You can find the link in the show notes down below. I'm using it under fair use. All right, let's go. Now, Raul is the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. He's a very successful dude <laughs> and he has blocked me on Twitter. He blocked me back. It was either 2016 or 17 when he sold his Bitcoin, very similar to how Keith McCulloch of Hedgeye just recently sold, you know, publicly sold all his Bitcoins. Raul did the same thing back then. And, you know, it, if you guys have been listening to the show, you know me, I'm not like some vitriolic person on Twitter or online. I don't even really go on Twitter all that much anymore. So he, he blocked me. Uh, I, I, and it's funny because I was trying to get him to see exactly pretty much what he's saying here in this video about Bitcoin. He's very, very Bitcoin bullish now. I don't know why he wouldn't have been to, uh, three or four years ago. He should have been if he would have had the real vision to see what's going on here. But today I want to concentrate on his CBDC take. Uh, again, if you guys want to watch the video, the link is in the show notes. And at the end, he goes on why he's super, super bullish on Bitcoin. I could do a whole big two-hour episode just reacting to all of this stuff, but I want to hone it into this uh, CBDC stuff. That's the central bank digital currencies that he talks about a lot. It's a growing meme. Everybody's talking about it really out there in the Bitcoin space. Uh, it's really taking over where blockchain left off, I would say. Uh, so I think it is important to get into some specifics on this. Before we get started, if you would like to support what I do, Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and you can rate it over on iTunes. Share it out with your friends. I also have a really great newsletter that goes out every Friday. It's free. You can subscribe by going to bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash membership, signing up for the free subscription. There you can also become a member and get access to member-only content that helps me out financially. Lastly, check out the Bitcoin Dictionary at bitcoindictionary.cc. It's a great book to help new people get up to speed with the jargon in Bitcoin and it's a great addition to any Bitcoin library. You can also complete a rating on Amazon if you already have bought the book. Thank you for supporting my content. Let's get into this video. I'm starting it at 5.15. Obviously, we've all seen the rise of Bitcoin, and we've all seen the political shifts that are going on in the world today. It all looks like we're reaching this point. And I've said this is where macro, crypto, politics, everything comes into the same big bucket it's yeah macro crypto politics economics technology geopolitics demographics all that stuff uh, comes in here and that's what i was trying to tell you four years ago when you blocked me but no i'm not bitter <laughs> if you're watching this row we'll reach out maybe uh, we can talk about this stuff it's all concentrated in our pure focus right now so we know that Bitcoin plays a part in this. We know that gold plays a part in this. We know that there's too much debt. We know that there's problems with demographics. We know there's a disinflationary world where, where wages are deflating. So it makes prices look like they're inflate. It's a really complicated, messy, ugly place. And people feel disenfranchised. People realize something bad is happening and they don't know what it means for them. I think that's a very important point about the dis disenfranchisement. Uh, the kind of general feeling that something's not right um, and we don't know the future. The future is uncertain. And so when the future is uncertain, you spend less, you save more. Uh, it's a subconscious thing that happens. And part of what the Fed is doing these days is trying to psychologically battle that. Okay, so they say, we're going to cause inflation. We're going to let it run hot. Well, yeah, because they're trying to break that mindset of uncertainty, of something's wrong here, you know, bad times are, are ahead. Uh, so everyone feels that. Also about the inflation, de <laughs> deflation stuff, I couldn't let that slide. 
if you want to know my thoughts on that, I did a, a four-part series. Just go back on my podcast feed uh, to, I think it's like episode 211. And you can see where I, I went four long episodes t- uh, talking about exactly what we're seeing out there and why why we're seeing no inflation and we're actually in a deflationary environment. Okay, let's continue. I'm going to try and help you with some of that. You see, the news is starting to come out that central banks are going to adopt digital currencies. If you remember, this started getting floated by, I think Facebook Libra was one of the first. They came up with this idea of creating a global basket of currencies that were digital, and they would have this foundation in Switzerland, and that global basket would be a new world currency, which could be used for the internet to interact on. The central banks looked at that and said, no, you're not doing this because this really is redefining the rules of currency. And what you're going to create, it was basically a a, uh, stable coin, but what you're going to create is something that's out of our control. Now, they kind of don't mind Bitcoin yet, and we'll come on to that later. They've observed it, they've seen it, and they're learning from it. But Libra was too groundbreaking. Yeah, I I agree with this as well. Libra was a... Real big turning point, I would say, for the the banker class out there. They they took it seriously at that point. Even the political class started taking it more seriously. Uh, so I agree that that was a big turning point. They never, I mean, their their hubris is so large, and they never thought Bitcoin was actually a threat. But then they're like, oh crap, Facebook wants to launch launch a currency. And see, I don't even know if Facebook was serious about this. Did they even think that they could launch? some sort of SDR or, you know, basket of currencies um, (laughs) extra nationally, you know, outside of all nations. And I I don't know if they were even serious or if they thought that, you know, they just wanted to get the conversation going. I don't know exactly what Facebook was thinking, but uh, it didn't seem very likely from the, from the outset. Mark Carney then raised it last year. The BIS had written some things about digital currencies and some other governments had looked at it too. But Mark Carney put the shot across the bow at Jackson Hole last year, where he said that what Libra was doing was probably the future. That this system where something like 79% of all transactions on earth are in dollars, yet the US is only 25% of global GDP. How does that work? This leads to these dollar shortages, these problems. Problems where countries like South Africa are beholden to the US dollar, or Brazil, or Argentina, when really their trading partners may be elsewhere, but the dollar rules all. It is so all-encompassing, so powerful as as a reserve currency, that it's breaking the very system we're in. Okay. This is a really important part here. So uh, 79-80% of all transactions are done in the dollar when it's only 25% of the GDP. That shouldn't surprise people. Uh, That should be logical because money is a convergent phenomenon that means it has a network effect and the more people that use it the more benefit it brings to everyone that's using it so these countries aren't beholden to the u.s dollar they are benefited from it there is a problem using the dollar as a political weapon or using swift or whatever as a political weapon but i mean nothing's stopping south africa from only using the rand Nothing's stopping them from going to Brazil and saying, hey, Brazil, we want to sign a trade deal with you or we want to do business with you. Any businessman from South Africa going to Brazil and trying to do a deal in South African rand, it's not going to fly. That's why they use the dollar, because the dollar benefits them. They can do the trade. It's not a problem to have one currency be 80% of all transactions. It's actually a problem to have it not be 90 or 95%. There's always going to be room for some smaller players there. But, you know, in a Pareto distribution, this is what we would expect. In a Pareto distribution, we expect number one to have about 80%. Now, in Bitcoin, we've talked about, you know, (laughs) in the far future when it's a Bitcoin world, is Bitcoin going to be 80% or more? You know, there's like a super Pareto distribution or something. I don't know when it's like 95%. I don't know. I think it would be better for business if more transactions happened in the dollar. But, I mean, there are reasons why that doesn't happen right now, and most of that is political. And that might be some of the 
problem that Raul's keying in on here. The reason why it's not 95% instead of just 80%, um, that's because there's problems with the dollar system. So yeah, South Africa can always not use the dollar. Brazil can always not use the dollar. Anybody is free to do it. It's just like a Bitcoin fork, okay? Everybody is free to download the Bitcoin code and fork it however they want to, change it however they want to, and run whatever version that they want to. But the reason why they don't is because it benefits them to all be on the same version. Okay? This is like perfect freedom. All of these countries exist in a state of anarchy with each other, and they could, if they decided, to use other things. But they don't, because the dollar benefits them. Network effects are very, very powerful. And this isn't to say that there aren't bad things with the dollar. There, there definitely are bad things with the dollar. Like I said, why it's not 95% instead of 80%. But there's many more problems with the real or the rand or the rupee or the renminbi or anything that we, you want to pick. The yen, the pound, the euro. It, there's more problems with those currencies. Let's see. And CBDCs, that doesn't fix those problems. So, big surprise, there is convergence in money. And this is what Bitcoiners have been saying the whole time. And anybody who wants to launch a CBDC is going to find out very quickly about convergence. I, I, these countries are just upset that they can't print the dollar. That's the big, the big thing they're upset with. And one of the things that would make the dollar better is if the U.S. government couldn't print it either. Nobody could print it. Then it would be a much, much better currency. Anyways, um, let's keep going. We've got problems where a, a dollar abroad, the offshore dollar, the euro dollar, is non-fungible with a dollar in the U.S. So the Federal Reserve, if it tries to accommodate companies that have borrowed dollars in the international markets, have no way of doing it. They can have swap lines that go to the existing banks in these other countries, but there's no guarantee the banks will lend to the corporates who need it. You see, these problems are everywhere. Well, that's not really a problem, is it? I mean, do you really want central bankers picking winners and losers in Malaysia or Philippines or Japan somewhere? You know, I don't think central planning works. It's a bad solution to give planning power to some central board. And do you want to give it to a board of 12 governors at the Fed? That wouldn't make it better. Saying that they should be able to do this is easier also than giving specific implementations. How would they actually get money to those companies without being corrupt, without being political favors, without all of these problems that go along with it? Would the system that, the dollar system, would it work better if it were different like this? No, I don't think it would. I think it's very good to have limitations on what the central banks can do, uh, what the Fed can do. This is a big reason why the dollar has gained so much dominance in the world is because people don't trust those foreign currency providers, those central planners in the other countries, right? People don't trust central planners. The dollar seemed to have limits placed upon it. I mean, we can talk about being under Bretton Woods and then going off of Bretton Woods in 1971. There was a change there. But under the euro dollar system, more than half of the, the dollar entire global reserve currency system is outside of the jurisdiction of the United States. It's, it's not beholden to the United States either. So it's kind of a free market solution and decentralized solution. And so they, there's major limits placed upon it. People see that and they're like, naturally, they tend to be attracted towards this fairer system. Because they see, especially the big people, you know, the big money in all these smaller countries, they know they're corrupt. They're part of the corruption. And if they go out of power, they don't want to have problems with their money. So they're going to hold their value in dollars and do more business in dollars. I mean, all of these things put together are lead people to converge onto a money. All right. What else do we have on this part? I think that might be it. Let's keep going. 
We've also then hit COVID. And COVID was like that 2008 moment or the European moment 2012, where everything stopped and all of the trends hyper-accelerated. The trend I'm more interested in was really the trend of governments having to use central banks to backstop them to create enormous fiscal stimulus. So we've seen the largest fiscal stimulus by any measure the world has ever seen. And basically, the central banks have printed money to allow it to happen. Now, most of us knew this was coming, but the scale of it has been shocking. And it's not finished yet. I think COVID is around for a lot longer than people realize. And the situation in Europe is only going to get worse. And I think the US will too. And it's going to require more and more stimulus. I'm not entirely sure how the Europeans are going to keep hold of their banking system in the middle of this. And I feared for a long time it may end up getting nationalized. Yeah, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't think that's uh, very controversial to say. Um, I don't feel like the governments necessarily or the central banks are necessarily printing money. And I don't think that the governments ran to the central banks to backstop them. The, it's It's a psychological placebo effect, right? So if the... Jay Powell in his nice suit with all the books behind him and on the bookshelf. He's looking very, very smart, very in control, very put together. And he says, like, we're going to create a flood of liquidity and we're going to let inflation run hot. Like that is a psychological placebo effect that they're trying to get from the market. Um, that is the backstop. All right, let's keep going. But against that backdrop, of this extreme situation where governments really can't print more money because they just have constraints within their parliamentary systems. And okay, so now they can't print more money. You know, they can't print money, but they have printed money. And they can print as much as they want, and they can go to the moon and back with debt. Those two things, the, all these things aren't connecting for me. Yet, central banks are telling them they need to do more. And we'll try and backstop you. This is an awkward situation that nobody knows how to deal with. But the central banks are pushing to say we need more. So then we start getting the ECB talking about a central bank digital currency, a digital euro or e-euro. Well, that's interesting. Why are they doing that? Next was the IMF. Out this week, papers about digital currencies. Then we've seen it from the Department of Justice in the U.S. We've seen it from the agreement in the U.S. for certain banks to custody Bitcoin and other digital assets, allowing them to come into the system. We've seen a whole bunch of these things. And the IMF... Not all these things connect. They're not all related, but okay. To tomorrow on Monday, so by the time you see this, we'll have had a speech about this, a whole panel, including Jay Powell. The Cleveland Fed is written. And I have the benefit of hindsight because I've seen, you know, this was, this video is two weeks old and I've already seen all the stuff from Jay Powell. But Jay Powell and the Fed talked about CBDCs. Nothing really new came from that IMF thing, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. Written about it and many others. People are talking about it everywhere. The drumbeat is getting louder. They're going towards central bank digital currencies. So what does that mean? Surely, currency is digital now anyway. I mean, you can pay with your credit card, you can transfer money. Well, this is very different. Right now, to transfer money, you go through the banking system. Okay, real quick here. Um, the drumbeat's getting louder. Yes, I've, I've heard it. There's a handful of people out there that are doing this drumbeating. A few researchers at the BIS and a few people at the IMF and, and ECB and stuff. A lot of, I think there's something like, 80 central banks that have research going on about CBDCs, but only very few have launched anything, even a, even like a pilot program. Uh, and then even fewer yet, like I th the Bahamas just launched the sand dollar. So that's something interesting that I've been trying to find more specification on because there, there's, they just say they launched and here's how you can use it at these point of sales, but there's not a lot of information about what it is or how it works. There's, I think Malaysia maybe has one, and and of course China is in, I would call it beta testing phase or phase two, and so you know a, lot, a few people are out there. But 
Yeah, the drumbeat is getting louder, but it's really only a few people. Think about these banks. There's not very many people at these banks that even understand what the hell they're doing. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. And if they did, they would be Bitcoiners and they would be hodling Bitcoin. But let's continue. Digital currencies are the central banks operating directly to you. So you have an account with a digital wallet with the central bank. So why do you need banks, do you ask? Well, I'll come on to that in a bit too. It's a complicated world and we don't quite know where it's going. But okay, so we've got the central bank digital currency. And if you see the nice fluffy way the IMF have dressed it up, it's, well, we've got a cross-border payments platform so you don't have to use those awful wire transfer systems. Yes. But it also means that people don't need the SWIFT transfer system, which is what creates the backbone of the US dollar. Now, I, I cross-border payments are possible today. This is one of my big problems with CBDCs is that it's not a technological problem. Okay. Cross-border payments happen all the time. It is super easy. It's trivial. If they let the regulations go overnight, we would have all of these companies doing uh, offering these cross-border payments instantaneously. So it's not a technological problem. It's a regulatory problem. And CBDCs, they just expand the regulatory problems. They don't like minimize these, the, the questions around it or how you move money. It's going to be even more draconian to hold on to these CBDCs that supposedly offer all these other benefits. But look, this is not a technological problem, cross-border payments. And again, SWIFT is a benefit to people. <laughs> they don't have to use it. They use it because they want to use the dollar. And it is a problem using SWIFT, weaponizing SWIFT, like I said, but overall, it's a benefit to these people. I'm not dollar bearish yet, and I think it will morph into that. I'm actually still extremely dollar bullish. We'll come on to the dollar a bit more in due course as well. But when we look at this, they're trying to create payment rails, so they say, and that's great. We need to be able to just instantly transfer from our mobile phone from one person to another. I can send money to my mum in Spain. She gets it instantaneously like it works for Bitcoin. Beautiful. But that's not the only reason. As I said, SWIFT is another big reason. The reason why people like China want to get off the SWIFT payment system and the global monetary system based around the US dollar. But before that, I don't think these people really want to get off of SWIFT and uh, get off of the dollar. They Politically, they do. Yes, it's politically, it makes them feel weak that they aren't the center, right? And they want the power. But, I mean, just ask the businessman if he <laughs> he wants dollars. Jeff Schneider says it in this way. Um, they are being forcefully de-dollarized. Because they want dollars to pay their debts. They want to stay solvent, but they can't get access to the dollars. And so they sell their treasuries or other dollar-denominated assets to get hold of dollars. Comes this idea of central banks and fiscal policy. We've run out of monetary policy. Rates are zero or negative in most countries. I believe rates will go negative in the US by the end of this COVID recession. I think it goes on longer than people expect. People are familiar with my unfolding thesis where I think we go into a insolvency phase as growth doesn't materialize as people expect, even with some stimulus coming after the election. You see, central banks want to be able to give people money directly, direct monetization. They can't do that right now. Right now, they print money, it goes into the banking system, the banks hoard it because we're going through a credit crunch. So that's very typical action. They keep their reserves higher than normal and the money doesn't get into the system. So only the best creditors get access to the money, which doesn't help when you've got a, a solvency problem when people who don't act get all the credit, who can't issue bonds, let's say they're not a giant corporation, they can't issue bonds, they can't get credit, they go to the wall. Okay, this is a very good point. I agree with the general flavor of this comment uh, that, yes, when interest rates are very low, that is a problem for less credit-worthy investors. 
Only the most creditworthy people are going to get loans. Banks will not want to lend. I've talked about this. It takes two to tango. So at low interest rates, banks don't want to lend. And at high interest rates, borrowers don't want to borrow. So there is a Goldilocks zone in the middle where you know, interest rates are facilitating growth. They're facilitating the economy. Uh, and at the extremes, there's actual credit contraction. So as we have low interest rates, we actually have credit contraction, which is uh, totally opposite of what most people think. They think, oh, yeah, borrowers, they'll borrow so much money and they will expand credit and stuff. But that's, the problem is that the lenders don't want to lend. Okay, so at the extremes, it's credit contraction. Um, and that can actually explain a lot of this, uh, these asset price inflation that we hear so much about, like stocks and bonds and real estate, because first off, the mortgages are collateralized. And so they will, more people can qualify for a mortgage than they could for a, just a plain old, maybe unsecured or uncollateralized loan. Only the top credit worthy people can do that. Uh, but when you have a mortgage, your house is backing that. So that more people can get access to that type of loan. And that's why real estate prices go up. Um, another thing would be large corporations. They're more credit worthy so they can get more loans and do more things. So we have a stocks going up, bonds going up, um, things that rich people buy or more credit worthy people buy, uh, and also homes. It makes total sense, right? And that's where everyone sees the inflation. But that can actually be happening in a contraction. Just think about that. In a contraction, when interest rates are very low, there's going to be certain assets that actually appreciate because of the way this works. Uh, I think this is a very good explanation for why we have this asset price inflation. Other than the, that, the credit crunch and stuff, there's so much to unpack there. I don't have time to do that here. So let's keep going. So if you remember, the government started giving direct payments, this $1,200 and other such payments to corporates and loans. But it's clunky to go through government. We've seen some of the payments didn't happen. It was slow. It was slow to get off the ground. There was no easy way to do it. So the central banks think, huh, we've got no monetary policy left. So why don't we do the fiscal? So in times of crisis, and this is how it will get sold, we can do it directly. We can okay, so I don't know if he's playing devil's advocate here, but look, central banks are central planners. They're government institutions. Now, they might not be owned by the government directly or whatever, but they are central planners. So they're in the same basket as governors, uh, as governments. So if the going through the government is clunky. Going through the central bank is going to be just as clunky. Do you want a central bank to uh, deal with every single business loan? If I own a coffee shop, I need to go to the central bank to get a loan to buy a new espresso machine. You know, a $2,000 espresso machine. I need a quick line of credit to get that espresso machine. You know, does, does the central bank want to be dealing with all of that all the time for everybody? No. There's a reason that banks exist, local banks exist, because they, they're closer to the people, they know the situation, they know the business, and they can more efficiently allocate capital that way. So no, it's going to be central planning is central planning. It sucks. It's, it decreases prosperity. If you think government's clunky, central banks doing everything is going to be way more clunky. We can circumvent everybody, put it straight on our balance sheets and give you money, you in need of it, directly money. That's a great thing. So you're a restaurateur. You're out of business right now. You've got a solvency problem because you can't pay your rent. You've laid off your staff and you can't reopen. So you're stuck. Do you just lose your business you've, you've had for over the last decade or two? Or do you somehow sit it out? The bank won't give you money. The government gave you some sort of loan, but what else is coming? How do you survive this? Well, the central bank could give you money directly. That kind of stimulus is what they want to do. Look, again, I don't know if he's being devil's advocate here, but a certain type of emergency things, because this isn't the solution. The CBDC solution is not just aimed at these emergency measures. They want to do this all the freaking time. It's also a way for them to kickstart universal basic income because the central bank can, under, can underpin 
the poorer parts of society by giving them money directly. It doesn't go on the government balance sheet. Now, central banks now believe they're omnipotent, that they can continue to expand balance sheets forever. MMT seems to be the prevalent thought. And okay, so there, there's a few things in this section I wanted to hit. First is the omnipotence. I don't think it's the central bankers that think they're omnipotent. I think it's people like Raul that are ascribing them like godlike powers to centrally plan the economy, right? It's all these people that think, oh, the bankers could do this. There could be benefit in this, this form of central planning. So it's not the central planners actually, in this case, ascribing omnipotence in themselves. It's everybody else. They've successfully done the white coat syndrome on these macro people. Then he gets into, it's not on the government's balance sheet, it's on the central bank's balance sheet. Well, that's not really the case because the government is always the ultimate backstop of their currency. So this would ultimately come back to be on the shoulders of the central government. And let's see, what else do you touch on in that section? UBI, I don't think UBI is all that popular. There might be a segment of the population, like 25% maybe, that think it's workable. Um, probably another 25% that know nothing about it, but kind of like the idea. <laughs> and MMT, probably even less. I bet there's, I would say maybe even 10% that even know what it is. And then one to 2% that think it's workable. So I don't really think these things are that popular. And I don't think that these things are like the goal of any sort of central bank plot or central bank planning. I don't think they have that kind of uh, mindset at all. All right, let's continue. This is just an extension of this. This is kind of Keynesian, Keynesianism gone mad. But it could work for a period of time. You see, this could be a really, really good way to solve many of the world's problems. It solves the SWIFT problem. It solves the Eurodollar funding markets problems. It solves the problems of getting money to people who need it. Okay, so he lists the problems here that CBDCs will solve okay and it solves the swift problem again there is no swift problem swift benefits those who use it and everyone wants to use it so there's not really a problem with swift i, th I think that's just a, a a misreading of the situation the euro dollar funding um there <laughs> can you imagine getting funding in a small cbdc it would be virtually impossible so these types of things, CBDCs and stuff, they're not going to solve any sort of funding problems. They're actually going to destroy the global funding market that's out there right now. They're going to destroy it. If if we all went to CBDCs tomorrow, it would be a total upending of the entire system. Global trade would crash down 99%, and it would take a long time to build it back up. And in the process of building it back up, we would converge onto a single money. <laughs> we wouldn't be using these uh, many little small CBDCs. It would be a currency market around one major coin. And that's what we see in Bitcoin. You know, It came out of nowhere. It had to build its own liquidity. It's been growing and growing and growing. And now it's, it's a monster. And it's, I don't know, uh, I, I think if you don't count Tether, which is US dollar token, then Bitcoin has probably 90, 95% of the liquidity in the space. So this is what happens, okay? Money converges onto a single thing. And the last problem he has is getting money to those who need it. Now I explained that this is not a good thing for governments to be doing, picking winners and losers for central bankers or central planners to be doing. They should not be picking winners and losers. That's a great way to have a shitty economy. So being able to get money to those who need it, that's what the market does. That's not a that's not a problem for central planners to solve for us, okay? All right, let's keep going. Central banks can also change entirely the structure of how money and monetary policy works and fiscal policy because they can give it to different people in different ways. So they can credit the restaurateur then penalize with negative interest rates the baby boomer saver because they want to release their money back into the economy. They can give students a positive interest rates to help them save. They can change everything. 
This is the rise of behavioral economics and incentive systems. So governments are... Okay, <laughs> this is a very important part. He sounds like an altcoiner, all right? He's very focused on features. What are the features of the system? What can it do? What can we program into it? You know, what can the central planners do? Uh, how many problems can they fix, etc.? Um, that is exactly an altcoiner thing. When the question is about the money, okay? People use the dollar because it's limited. They have confidence in it. It's mostly decentralized. Uh, and so uh, that's the same reason that brought us to gold and brought us to Bitcoin because of the confidence that we have in it. What's the term that Pierre, I think Pierre termed this, I think Pierre coined this, the a credible monetary policy. That is what brought us to Bitcoin and that is what is going to win. So yes, the rise of behavioral economics and incentive systems. That is exactly what an altcoiner would say. It's like a central planner that knows Python. That's not going to fix the world's problems. It's not going to be very popular even. Also, giving money to certain people or giving a different interest rate to this person and dynamically shifting the properties of the money itself. This is just a misunderstanding of what money is and what a global reserve currency is. Um, if central banks tinker constantly or the properties of the system are dependent on political whim, then people won't use it. That's why they use the dollar instead of their local currency in the first place because they don't trust those people because they know that they're corrupt. They know that they will change and print or do whatever. So they use this kind of semi-decentralized system called the U.S. dollar or the euro dollar system. If you tinker, you affect the confidence. You need to have a limited money or limited control over the system. That will be selected naturally over a system that is constantly tinkering and doing dynamic changes to the, to the properties of the money. Also, you know, the CBDCs, they, we haven't really talked about this at all, but CBDCs will get attacked. The, those incentive systems, the rise of the behavior, economics, and incentive systems that Raul said, it will be attacked. And we see this with DeFi. So DeFi today, this is decentralized finance. It's all these crypto folks out there. They're programming all these different types of smart contracts and things. They're trying to gamify money. Well, what happens? Somebody outgames them and destroys the system or takes money, steals money out of the system by gaming the incentives. They get owned constantly every single day. Not a week goes by that we don't see at least one major uh, mess up with these DeFi things. And imagine a central bank digital currency that has that. Okay, These incentive systems will get owned. It is impossible to program for a market. That is a central planner's wet dream. It's not going to happen. All right. The best thing you can do is lock it down, limit what it can do, limit the rules, make it, you know, pretty much rock solid on the consensus rules of what governs the system and make it decentralized so no one can change it. Then people can trust it. Then they can build contracts on it. Then they can, uh, that can underpin a vibrant economy, but not an ever changing money. That's not going to underpin anything. Also, as you tinker, you know, you let's say your incentives don't get gamed, but as you tinker, you're going to create problems. You might create an oversight, like I think he said already, is there's unintended consequences. And so, yes, in, intervention has unintended consequences. Intervention begets more intervention. And it's a rabbit hole that you go down until before you know it, it's totally useless anyway. So all of these things go into why central bank digital currencies can't work in the long run. They might work in the short run, very small scale, uh, but it's just the next uh, altcoin fever. They're stuck on features. They're stuck on learning about a new idea, really getting it for the first time. Like my era, when I really got it for the first time, and then I heard people talking about blockchain, I'm like, okay, blockchain is, that could have something to it. And then I learned more and I'm like, well, blockchain is just a scam. This is the same sort of thing with CBDCs. Raul seemingly has very recently become bullish. He's very recently had an aha moment, probably in the last year. 
And now he's seeing this rise of the CBDCs and he hasn't quite gotten to the point of evaluating those yet. Um, but once he does, he'll find out that, look, these are just, it's just uh, some crazy fantasy in a central planner's mind or a money printer's mind. People that want the seniorage of the system or whatever. So that it's not going to work. There's no, no real benefits. But let's keep going and see what he says. Essentially, using big data can find who they need to stimulate at any time and adjust accordingly. They can do it dynamically. This is a, a structural, massive shift to everything we understand about economics, particularly macroeconomics. Not really. Nobody's prepared for this. None of us know what this means. It means, and it will be sold on, a load of good things. And I think there's a lot of good things that come from this. I think, Yeah, it will be sold on a load of good things. But that's what scammers do. Con men sell their Ponzi schemes on a load of good things. But that doesn't mean they're real. Okay? It is an elegant solution to some of our problems. But elegant solutions in governments and central banks lead to unintended consequences. Ah, there it is. The issue is here is to have this new system, you're going to give up your freedom. You are going to have every transaction you've ever done and ever will do recorded. There is no cash. There is no way of tipping the gardener unless it goes by cash. It means that they can tax you at every transaction level. Now, that's great. We could get rid of the IRS and all of the tax collection agencies because it could be done directly. That's good. But again, you've lost your freedom to transact in anonymity that cash gives you. Most of us really don't have that freedom. I mean, let's face it, behavioral economics, we've seen the rise of Facebook and Google, and they manipulate us all day and all night for their own economic ends or for the ends of their advertisers. And governments, well, they do the same. They've used and adopted behavioral economics and will do more and more so. And we don't really have a lot of anonymity from them. So there is a big pro and a big con to this, but it's coming and it's going to change everything. All right. So this section, he's talking about cash and freedom. That He's like, cash is done. Uh, getting rid of cash. You can't tip your gardener anymore. Uh, yada, yada, yada. All this, you give up freedom. Okay, first off, you can't get rid of cash, really. I guess some smaller countries that might have less uh, ingrained individual ideas of individual freedom and business uh, then possibly you could get rid of cash. But really, I mean, look, there's there's money in prison. There's cash in prison. So I don't think you can really get rid of cash at, at all. People will trade liquor or uh, people will trade cigarettes or, <laughs> I mean, you could come up with a million things that people could trade other than cash, like from the, the government. Uh, so, and a lot of people rely on black market type stuff, right? So if you get rid of cash, people will find a way around it. So your gardener, you could tip them with a turkey or um, food, or you could tip them with uh, some sort of liquor or anything, right? A five gallon thing of gas. I don't know. You could tip them with whatever you want. The, there is a tipping without cash. First off, I mean, that is barter, but it can be money. Like if it's a bottle of liquor, say it's a bottle of vodka or tequila or something, and you could trade that with a lot of people. That that gardener could take it to the butcher and get some food from it. You know, so um, there's different ways to get around this. You can't get rid of cash. Uh, plus, gosh, I mean these CBDCs they make me think they want to get rid of the gray market. And let's say they do. What happens if they we go to a CBDC system? And the gray market is gone. Well, that's a third of the global economy disappeared. So you are going to hurt all those millions and millions of people, probably a billion people that survive every day in a gray market. You're going to wipe them out. I don't think that's a very, very good system. I don't think that's very politically feasible in most places. So this all goes down to freedom, freedom to use cash, free, um, He's like, you have to give up your freedom to do these systems. Well, freedom is not just a nice to have, okay? Freedom is 
the best economic system. The freer the markets, the more prosperous the people. That is just the way it works. And so if you are saying that you're going to curtail freedom, what you're saying is you're going to curtail the prosperity of your people. By, by saying that there's all these benefits, but you have to curtail freedom, you're saying that those benefits don't really add up to being a benefit. Because if you curtail freedom, you curtail prosperity. Freedom equals prosperity, right? And if you decrease freedom, you decrease prosperity. It's one-to-one -one here. All right, let's continue. Now, the problem is, is if you are trapped in a system now where there is no way out, then how do you avoid some of the other bad outcomes? You see, what the IMF are talking about is a Bretton Woods agreement, an agreement amongst nations. Again, it's something I've talked about for a long time, whether it ends up being a debt jubilee or a different event. It looks like it's morphing into something like a currency agreement. It won't come quickly, but the currency agreement is likely to be, let's say, a trade-weighted global basket. So that means, or maybe there's an oil co a commodity producer's basket as well. So people can have different baskets of currencies. That moves away from the need for the SWIFT payment system. It moves away from the US dollar issues. It just changes how currencies are transacted. And the IMF have made it very clear. It means that it can agree en masse for countries to stimulate or central banks at the same time. So then everybody can print money at the same time. So not, we don't get these big currency dislocations. Sounds kind of cute, right? But what it does is debase the entire fiat currency system. And we've seen that. I've been tracking the price of gold against 27 world currencies. And gold does its job extremely well. As more and more money gets printed, more, the more gold goes up. Well, okay. <laughs> First, let's tackle the gold thing. Uh, that's not true. Yes, for maybe emerging markets, he said he tracked 27 global currencies. He must not be tracking the dollar because... The dollar is today, it's below, it was something like 18, 1875 today or whatever. It's below its all-time high from back in 2011. Yeah, sure, it recently passed it, but it's currently below the all-time high from back in 2011. And I think we've quote-unquote printed more money since then. This it doesn't work for the dollar. It does work for other currencies because other currencies are not the global reserve currency. So that's that piece. What else did he say there in that section? Uh, Bretton Woods, a, agreement of nations. I totally 100% disagree with this. First off, is India going to agree with China? How about Japan and China? How about the UK and Europe? What we've actually seen here over the last decade is people moving away from these type of agreements. People are not trying to give away their sovereignty. So some some international agreement can take away their sovereignty and make them print money. See, what he, he said there was they were going to have an agreement where they could print in mass together. So everyone would be debased at the same rate. Now, does that sound like something that the current geopolitical situation where people are breaking apart, there's uh, populism on the rise, nationalism on the rise. Does that sound like something that's going to catch on in the world today? No. And plus, nobody's going to want to be with China. They're not going to want to do anything with China. China is facing a huge coalition against them, and they're in the middle of the largest credit bubble ever, even bigger than 2008 in the United States with the mortgage crisis and stuff. China's problem is gigantic. Okay, and nobody's going to want to be with China doing that. Who knows? There probably will be two Chinas in the future, in the near future. He also talked about different baskets. So you can have like a commodities basket and a currency basket. I mean, this is just pluralism through and through. It has no, he's not appreciating anything that has to do with monetary convergence. Um, it just... That's that won't happen. That's not how money works. Okay, they might try it. They might bill it as like some great thing. Oh, we're going to do a commodity basket and a currency basket. They might try to sell it, but it won't work. It won't work as money. Okay, let's continue. Relative to those currencies and Bitcoin, even more so. 
So we've got this enormous debasement coming. They've made it clear. It's one way out of the debt. Debase your currency. Now, don't take my previous comment right there. I had to stop it here again. Don't take my previous comment to mean that I think that Bitcoin won't work or anything like that. Because Bitcoin isn't giving up your sovereignty to anyone else. It is using a neutral tool, a neutral unit of value, a measuring stick of value. And so that is not in the same boat as giving up your sovereignty to some trilateral commission or some board of governors. That's a, it's just totally different. Late your way out. Whether you create structural inflation or monetary debasement, they're different things. And I'm not going to debate all of the nuances of the inflations. I don't think it's the cost of goods inflation you're going to say. I think technology, demographics, and debt destroys a lot of that. But I do think it's going to cre create some big structural issues. So there's no avoidance of this for us. I think it's funny he said um, that he's not going to debate these things. And then the next thing he said, there's no avoidance. So he was avoiding the debate. And then he said, anyway, I just thought it was funny. Outside of thinking about something like Bitcoin. Bitcoin and gold offer us a life raft, a way out of this particular conundrum where every transaction is monitored, where we can be taxed immediately and we have no freedoms. And again, it can be a very good system. So I'm not actually against it per se, because it's going to come in some way, shape or form, the end of our current regime. So let's talk about the end of the regime before we go on to the future of Bitcoin and, and other digital currencies. So the most likely outcome for me is we are still in this insolvency phase. That tends to push the dollar higher. I think the dollar goes significantly higher. I've said this for a period of time. I think the euro goes a lot lower and many other currencies do, particularly in this debt phase of the cycle. But at the end of it, that's only going to make it more and more important for these countries to get together, whether it's the IMF, the BIS, or all of them, plus maybe the G10, to decide on how to do something about it, a kind of plaza report cord and Bretton Woods all rolled into one. And that is when the dollar starts losing its traction, and massively so. And I think... So let me get this straight. These countries are going to be hurting badly. There's probably going to be some wars out there. This isn't even touched on in his his analysis here, but there's no way that we go the next few years with people suffering from a strong dollar and no wars being fought. Okay. So neighbors will fight neighbors and then they're going to be able to agree to some sort of international agreement. I don't think so. See, uh, the reason why Bretton Woods initially was able to be passed was because, well, two reasons. One is Everyone else was wrecked. And the U.S. was the last economy standing. They were close to 50% of the world GDP. And it seemed very natural to let them kind of usher in this world. Plus, you know, the U.S. was a benevolent type of power. They, they didn't try to occupy these countries or anything like that at the end of World War II. So, I mean, I, Japan might be a little bit different story, but... Okay, we, we could talk about that in a different discussion, but um, for for Europe at least, the U.S. government was generally benevolent, and there was a common enemy in the Soviet Union. The second thing that helped Bretton Woods actually get, get agreed upon was because it was a gold standard. The U.S. dollar was pegged to gold, and then everything else was pegged to the dollar. So... Those are the two things, the reason why Bretton Woods worked the first time. Everyone was wrecked, and it was backed by gold, a neutral asset. So <laughs> we don't have any of those things with this CBDC system. That's to come. But a stronger dollar is actually something to fear more right now, because it creates disinflationary problems, and it creates a relative increase in the price of debt. Debt plus deflation is a ticket to bankruptcy. So I'm very worried about that because it can cause an emerging market crisis, it can cause corporate debt defaults, and it can cause a number of other issues. So let's keep our eye on that situation. But I think the dollar is the thing that will get sacrificed in the end, but not before it goes up a lot. 
The central bank digital currencies, I think, will come over the next two years. I think we're already seeing it in China, we're already seeing it in Sweden, Singapore's ready to launch, a number are, and they'll do, go slowly. So you'll be able to open a, a wallet with a central bank, you'll be able to make some transactions, and then you'll be slowly forced into the system, and then the whole system will be upon us. So I- he sounds just like an altcoiner. Just like an altcoiner, man. That's what they always say. Oh, it's two years down the road. It, it, it's like an XRP army, right? That the, These things are just down the road. It's everything's going to be going. The world is going to be going on to this new system. I mean, there, there's no evidence of this. There's absolutely zero evidence of any uptake whatsoever, any benefit to these systems whatsoever. I don't know why he would go from zero real world evidence to total adoption in five years. <laughs> it just, it racks the mind. So I think by three years, there'll be mass adoption. By five years, there'll be no cash. So that's essentially how it'll work. And then you can make the real structural changes. First, you have to get everybody into the system. Then you make the big changes. So this is kind of a five-year view. And so when you're looking for the life... Almost done here, guys. Raft. Okay, how do I avoid this? The debasement of currencies. Forget the freedom stuff, because I just don't think that exists in our world. But I'm more worried about the debasement of my savings. We all work hard for our money, and we don't want to get screwed by the system. And everybody has a feeling we're getting screwed somewhere, whether it's negative interest rates or zero interest rates on our savings, or being forced into the most expensive equities of all time because there's nothing else to buy and our pension funds are doing it right when people are trying to retire. All the craziness of the world right now, it just feels wrong. And it feels like there is going to be political change and there's going to be massive structural change. So Bitcoin is my answer to that. I own gold and I own a lot more Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin works on a number of levels. And I'm not going to go into it now because there's plenty of pieces from me on why I think Bitcoin is a reserve asset and probably the world's most pristine reserve asset. It's the only hard asset that has a fixed supply that eventually runs out. And demand is increasing. Okay, that's our last clip of the day. Obviously, he's very bullish Bitcoin. Finally, (laughs) finally, after he blocked me years ago for pointing out the exact same reasons why he's bullish today, (laughs) that now he's bullish. We covered the 18 minutes that were the most applicable to the CBDC thesis. Okay, we didn't cover all of it. It's a much longer video. I think it's 35 minutes. Uh, You guys can go to that and listen to that uh, by following the link down in the show notes. Overall, uh, I see the CBDC thing as very similar to other hype cycles in Bitcoin, like original altcoins, that would be like 2012, 2013, blockchain, ICOs, DeFi, and now we have CBDCs. There's nothing unique or beneficial about these central bank digital currencies. I don't know where people get the idea that money is easy, right? Willy-nilly, just create money. Some central banker says, make it so, and the market falls right in line with that. A currency that is easier to manipulate and tinker with will lead (laughs) to less acceptance and less growth. I don't know how they could think that it's the opposite. You know, if we can tweak it more, then we can actually get more acceptance and more growth. It doesn't that's not how money works. Um, what they will eventually get is just more and more intervention and capital flight out of their currency. We also kind of covered Raul's vision of the end of the dollar. His is dominated by inflation and international agreement um, and perhaps a contentious shift to Bitcoin, where I see the end of the dollar as more of an uneven depression. So emerging markets will be very hardly hard hit. Uh, the U.S. will be much less hard hit. It will actually be the best economy during this, these times. Um, but globally, we'll have slow growth, less trade, sporadic war uh, that the U.S. is not involved in, right? But it makes it harder to have these international agreements. And I do see a peaceful kind of transition to Bitcoin, just slowly people going on to Bitcoin because that's where the optimism is and that's where the growth is. So that's everything I have for this episode. If you want to, if you want me to do more reactions like this, then, you know, ping me on Twitter or join the Discord and tell me about it. 
But uh, yeah, that's it for this week. Don't forget to check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com and BitcoinDictionary.cc. See you next time.